you can turn to the Song of Solomon. Continue our series in that book. This book beautifully presents to us the relationship that Christ has with his church under the figure of marriage. Marriage is frequently used in the Bible to illustrate the relationship with Christ and his people. All who trust in Christ for salvation or who will trust in him are his bride and he is our husband. In a way, you can say before they've trusted that they're not yet his bride, but in a way they are uh, by election. The truth is, though, that God instituted marriage with this very thing in mind. Okay, that the relationship between him and us would be um, illustrated by marriage. It was designed, marriage was designed and patterned after the relationship that our Lord had determined from before the foundation of the world to establish his peop- with his people where God the Son would marry us and where we would be God's, the Father's sons who are redeemed by Christ. So that was God's plan all along. It wasn't an afterthought. That means that this connection is one that is very helpful for us in both directions. On the one hand, light is cast on our relationship with Christ by looking at marriage. And on the other hand, light is cast on our marriages by looking at the relationship with Christ. This is something like what Calvin talks about in the introduction to the Institutes of the Christian Religion when he talks about how, we know, how do we know God. He says, do we look at man, the image of God, so that we can know what God is like, man made in his image? Or do we look at God so that we can understand man? And uh, the answer that he gives to that is, is yes, we do. Uh, we, we do both. It works both ways. We look at both to get, sometimes we learn about the image, about man, the image, by looking at God, who is we're, we're the image of, and other times by looking at, at man. It works both ways. So it's that way with marriage. My prayer is that all of you will benefit will be able to benefit from this analogy because it's an analogy that God has given us in his word. Like marriage all through is used as an illustration and uh, it's, it's, quite, it's, it's quite detrimental to your walk with him if you're unable to receive the, the kinds of, of lessons that, that God has for us as his people, uh, lessons that he teaches us in this way with using marriage. We need to open our heart to receive these things. Um, Last week, we saw how we who belong to Christ by faith were brought out of the wilderness of the world. We were brought out of the wilderness of the world for what purpose? To be his wife. We who are so unworthy of him came up, if you remember, like pillars of smoke, coming up like pillars of smoke out of the wilderness. That was a picture of Israel coming out of Egypt and having their sacrifices that God had given them so that they had atonement through all those offerings that were made that represented Christ. And with incense was the other thing they had uh, coming up out of the wilderness that we saw last week, representing the intercession of Christ for his people that's signified by incense. Both of those things, the sacrifices and the incense of Christ, the sacrifice of Christ and the incense of Christ, his intercession, or what make us acceptable to God is from him. 
And we saw how we were conveyed to him through this world in his very own palanquin, a palanquin that he made for us, a, a litter, you know, with a, uh, men carrying on their so- shoulders. And then you had uh, an army that was around them, as it were, uh, to, to, protect, to protect us, to keep us safe. So we are betrothed, and we, he will bring us safely through this world to himself at the last day. Okay, that's what we saw last week. He, he has prepared a way for us that he has made to bring us from wilderness all the way to our wedding day where we, the bride of Christ, marry him the last day. That day will be presented to him as a bride adorned for her husband coming down from glory to, to, to marry him. Perhaps the most encouraging thing of all in that, what we looked at last week was to see him on the wedding day. Because you remember it was called the day of the gladness of his heart. And that shows his eagerness to have us as his bride and therefore his eagerness to bring us from where we are to where he would have us to be his wife. Today the picture seems to go on further with Christ doing what grooms often did at their weddings in those days. They, they prepared a wasp, which was a poem of praise where they praised the beauty of their bride. It was part of their preparation. They had week, weddings that lasted you know, a whole week, sometimes two weeks. And it was part of their preparation for the consummation of their marriage to praise their bride's beauty and then to enter into the, the sacred bond of marriage that God has appointed for, for husbands and wives. So today we're going to look at this wasp in, in which Christ reveals to us what he thinks of us as his bride. So let's turn now to our scripture reading, Song of Solomon 4, 1 through 11. And uh, l- let, me, let me just mention too that as, as we do this, I just want to remind you that when we see the Song of Solomon, I've told you that we can't necessarily have rigid times about, okay, this is here she's, uh, um, she's betrothed to him. This is before she's betrothed. Now she's betrothed. And then she, uh, this is where she's married. Sometimes those, those things are a little bit flexible in Scripture. Like there can be different pictures given. But as a general rule, okay, what we see is that once we trust in Christ, then we're said to be as a virgin that is betrothed to him. So we're betrothed. And betrothal is way more than our engagement, right? It's where you have a covenant bond, you're committed, there's promises made, and it would be adultery to break it. And then uh, at the end, when we are brought before him and the whole bride is gathered together the last day and we're we're brought before him and presented as as a bride without spot or blemish, then we enter into the full marriage relationship that's when the, uh, the, the consummation of the marriage, if you will, is, is brought about. So, so we're looking then at this uh, preliminary uh, blessing, this uh, praise of his bride that, uh, that he gives here in uh, Song of Solomon chapter 4, verse 1. So listen now as I read this to you. Behold, you are fair, my love. Behold, you are fair. You have dove's eyes behind your veil. Your hair is like a flock of goats going down from Mount Gilead. 
Your teeth are like a flock of shorn sheep which have come up from the washing, every one of which bears twins, and none is barren among them. Your lips are like a strand of scarlet, and your mouth is lovely. Your temples behind your veil are like a piece of pomegranate. Your neck is like the Tower of David, built for an armory, on which hang a thousand bucklers, all shields of mighty men. Your two breasts are like two fawns, twins of a gazelle, which feed among the lilies until the day breaks and the shadows flee away. I will go my way to the mountain of myrrh and to the hill of frankincense. You are all fair, my love, and there is no spot in you. Come with me from Lebanon, my spouse, with me from Lebanon. Look from the top of Amana, from the top of Sinar and Hermon, from the lion's dens, from the mountains of the leopards. You have ravished my heart, my sister, my spouse. You have ravished my heart with one look of your eyes, with one link of your necklace. How fair is your love, my sister, my spouse. How much better than wine is your love and the scent of your perfumes than all spices. Your lips, O my spouse, drip as the honeycomb. Honey and milk are under your tongue. And the fragrance of your garments is like the fragrance of Lebanon. And there we will end the reading. May the Lord bless to us the reading of his holy and infallible word. Indeed, there's so much here to encourage us. Here, first of all, our Lord tells us what he thinks of us. He tells us that he thinks that we are fair, that we are beautiful. He declares it directly and emphatically here. Verse 1 opens with these words of praise of us. Behold, you are fair, my love. Behold, you are fair. That's what he says to us. We have seen these words before. Do you remember them back in uh, chapter 1 and verse 15? I explained to you then that the word fair means beautiful, lovely, charming, pleasant, all of those things. This declaration of our beauty is here in this place strengthened in multiple ways. It's not just a simple declaration that just says, you are fair. But in Hebrew, it has a particle that intensifies it, causing it to say, really, you are very fair or you are very beautiful. And not only that, but it also is strengthened in the way that Hebrews like to strengthen things. And that's by repeating them. Okay, so you see that it says it not once, but it says it twice. Behold, you are fair, my love. Behold, you are fair. It's driving it home. And then to make it even stronger, it has the word behold added each time. A word that calls us to take notice of something, to attend to something, to pay attention. You know, this is significant. And to make it even sweeter, we are addressed here by him as my love. He tells us as his bride that we are the one that he loves. But be it known that he is only saying this to his true bride. Not to all people. That's very important because a lot of people want him to say that to everybody. He doesn't say it to everyone. His bride is made up of those whom he has rescued by his grace. When he found her. She was polluted and defiled by sin, an object 
of loathing and disgust. She is made up of the ones that he came from heaven to redeem out of that condition. She was dead in her sins, cut off from God, sentenced to everlasting punishment in hell, just like everybody else. And, and that not because God is severe, but because nothing else was fitting for us than everlasting punishment in hell. For we have all rejected the living God as our God. He cannot be so grossly dishonored by his creatures without repercussions. For he is God. And as God, he must have glory. The glory to which he is due. Yet in his unfathomable mercy, he sent his only son to redeem us. He sent him to take us as his bride so that he would then become responsible for our sin against God and might bear punishment for our sake. We owe this great debt to justice that we could never pay for all eternity. So he, the son of God, came to pay it for us. He came to pay the debt by suffering the pains of everlasting hell on the cross. And as the son of God, He alone could do that only also by becoming flesh. He had to be both God and he had to become flesh. So false religion like liberalism, modernism, Jehovah Witnesses, all those kind of things that deny that he is truly God. What do they always do? They always rely on works. Why? If the one that saves you is not the son of God. You can't really do very much. So you got to make up the rest. You got to do some works. And not only that, but um, also if he is not the son of God, then uh, he's not going to he's not going to be able to bring an offering for our sin that will truly appease God. And, and, and so we're going to have to do that ourselves. And uh, so what, what people sometimes do instead of. Um, of um, filling it up with works, they actually always do this, is they also diminish the holiness of God so that God is not understood by them, not accepted to be as holy as he is. And so therefore, like we can make it up or someone who's not really God can make it up. You, you You always have to end up with that when you when you pull him down from his deity. So this makes forgiveness cheap, cheap enough that you know, we can pay for it ourselves somehow. That's what the world wants. They don't want forgiveness to be so high a thing, so, so costly a thing for God that, that we can't pay it. But the true bride of Christ are those whose eyes have been opened by the Holy Spirit of God. We're able to see enough of the depth of our sin, enough of it, right? Not all of it, but enough of the depth of our sin And enough of the height of God's glory to realize that we could never pay the penalty of our sin. The true bride consists of those who see that only Jesus by his death on the cross could pay for their sins. And that only he by the working of his Holy Spirit could possibly bring them out of their bondage and their darkness and their rebellion and all. Give them a new heart so that they could ever walk with God and even want to be saved by him. And so the true bride about which Christ says, behold, you are fair, my love, behold, you are fair, is made up of no other 
than those who are trusting in Jesus Christ for salvation. They rely on him alone to save them. They put they, they have put themselves entirely into his hands for salvation, recognizing how utterly futile it would be for them or anyone else to try to save themselves. So let me say, let, let me say as strongly as I possibly can. If you are not trusting in Jesus Christ, you need to do so at once. Like everyone else, you are defiled and you will perish in your sin and guilt unless you trust in Jesus and his saving work. Can you see how guilty? Can you not see how guilty we all are? Can you not see how wrong it was for us to reject God as our God? And how that we can't possibly make that up and restore the glory of God that we so attacked except by suffering forever, punishment of hell? Can you not see that no one but the Son of God can possibly bear that punishment? Who who could do it? Only Him. God named Him Jesus because he came to save his people from their sins. No one else could save his people from their sins. Without him, you're exactly the opposite of fair in his eyes, the opposite of lovely or beautiful in his eyes. You are defiled, you are unclean, you are guilty, and you will be cast into the lake of fire forever that the justice, that justice may prevail and that God's glory might stand and not be diminished. But if you come to Jesus, trusting him for salvation, then you will be saved. God will be glorified for his mercy then in redeeming you by his son. And he will be glorified in that the debt of justice will be fully paid because Jesus Christ has paid that penalty. He has borne the punishment showing that something had to be done about the glory of God. You can't just leave it open with God's glory being diminished by our rebellion and nothing being done about it if we're going to be forgiven. We're not forgiven. We've paid ourselves all eternity. Once you come to Jesus in faith, you're his betrothed bride. From that time on, you're his betrothed bride presented to him as a, a chaste virgin Immediately you are forgiven because he pays your debt and immediately you will be numbered with those who make up his bride of whom he says, what? Behold, you are fair, my love. Behold, you are fair. That's what he thinks of all of you who are betrothed to him, who have come to him to be saved by him. Now, having declared how fair you are, how beautiful you are, look at how he describes your beauty. First, he says, still verse one, that you have dove's eyes behind your veil. Now, we've seen this before, too, haven't we? Do you remember in uh, Song of Solomon? Dove's eyes. What are they? Dove's eyes are eyes that are turned to Jesus. They are eyes for him. Remember how I told you that a dove, they, they can't move their eyes around, but they turn their head to whatever they're looking at. And so, and doves are also faithful. They have uh, one mate for life or sometimes until the, the mate dies. And their eyes will be turned to that mate very, very often. 
and they have eyes for one. And uh, this, this expression is used sometimes even in modern times that you'll say that like a girl has dove's eyes for a guy and some guy, you know, he's interested in a girl and he says, oh, you know, I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to see if I can go out with that girl or something. And everybody says, oh, no, she has dove's eyes for, for Dan. You know, she's not going to pay you any attention at all. <laughs> like she's smitten, you know, she's totally, she's, her eyes are just one direction. They're, they're one, one, one way. That's how those are who have trusted in Jesus. They're devoted to him. The only way of salvation, got no one else that we can look to. Our eyes are solely to him. They're, they're single as the, uh, as the old version would call the eye that is good is, is single. That's what the word actually means. It's, it's fixed on, on, it's not mixed up with a bunch of different things. So that judge, so the, the truth is though that we struggle sometimes with temptation. You know, when, with keeping our dove's eyes where they need to be. Um, but if we're truly born again, we have within us a seed of faith. Okay, we have faith at the core of us, saving faith that can never be destroyed, can never perish. And Jesus judges us with a judgment of charity because he looks at us the way a sculptor looks at his stone when he's chosen out a stone, he's taken it in hand to make something beautiful out of it. He sees what is in the stone before he chips away all the stuff to leave that image that he's going to make. Okay, so it's very interesting. What does he have to do to make that stone into this beautiful sculpture that he's going to make? He has to take away all the stuff that's not part of that beautiful image. All the corruption, all the stuff you could call it, all the extra stuff. He has to peel all that out. And then whatever he has seen in that stone that he's going to make, that's what will come forth. Jesus has already seen he has already put beautiful new life in us and he knows what that new life will look like for each one of us. And you see that judgment of charity can be seen in scripture when we, the scripture that we read today from the New Testament in Hebrews 11. I made a couple of comments as we were reading it. It speaks of all those people that are listed there as if they had perfect faith. When they didn't. When we read about them, they, they didn't. They were, they were more like us. Uh, take Sarah, Abraham's wife, as an example. Do you remember what she did when God said that she would have a son even though she was barren? She didn't have a son for a while. So then she said, um, Abraham, why don't you take my maid and you can have a son by by my maid and that would be you know the son that can be the heir that received the promises that God gave us for the salvation of the world and so you know Hagar the, the the maid and so child was born sure enough God said nope that's not the one so Sarah had faith you know it doesn't sound like a very strong faith God insisted then that no Sarah you're going to have a child now Sarah at that time she was not only barren all her life but now she was way past the age to be able to conceive a child. And she, you know, this is, what do you, what do you mean? You, know, she, you remember she laughed. She heard the, uh, the Lord talking about that to Abraham. And, and she laughed. And uh, then she lied and said that she didn't laugh. 
but she did. <laughs> and um, yet, listen to what the Lord says about her faith in his word in Hebrews 11, 11. By faith, Sarah herself also received strength to conceive seed, and she bore a child when she was past age because she judged him faithful who had promised. And we look at it and say, doesn't look like, <laughs> didn't look like she trusted him all that well. Uh, we see her lack of faith. We see her looking to Hagar and then doubting how she could have a child in her old age. But what does Jesus see? Dove's eyes. He sees dove's eyes in Sarah that, uh, that trust in him. Eyes that look to him with trust and devotion. Because those are the eyes that he gave to her to be her eyes forever and ever. The doubting eyes and eyes looking to other things are gone now. Sarah doesn't have the, who is she? She's someone who has dove's eyes for Jesus Christ and who always will. And he saw her in that way. Now, what else then? That's the dove's eyes. That's the first thing that he praises here, that he delights in, in his bride. What else does Jesus say about our beauty, the beauty of his bride? Well, next at the end of verse 1, he describes our hair. He says, your hair is like a flock of goats going down from Mount Gilead. Now, hair is given to us and to a bride, to a, to a woman, as, as adorning, an adorning. Something of glory and beauty um, in a woman is her hair. Um, here, our hair is compared to goats on the, the slopes of, um, of Mount Gilead. Now, this is a beautiful picture. When you looked across the Gilead, it's a very beautiful place, and you had the, you know, the green valley the, with the slope of Mount Gilead going up. And then you see these goats that are there packed together in a flock, and they, they look like hair you know, coming, coming across the mountain. Well, what should we think about this? Because, of course, we know that these things are an analogy of things that, of our relationship with Christ. So, so what is this talking about? Well, in both Timothy and Peter, women are told that before the Lord, their adorning is not so much their hair that he delights in, but it's their beautiful works. He says that's the adorning that a godly woman should have. That's what you see. See, when you look at someone, you see the hair. It's one of the first things, especially a woman. But when you look, you should see good works. You should see beautiful works. Jesus has redeemed us. So good works that, that we have begun, good works have already begun in us. Something that's already started, albeit imperfectly. But again, he sees in the beginning the finished product and he says to us, behold, my love, you are fair. Behold, you are fair. You are beautiful. We say, oh, my works aren't very, they're not worth much count. And he says, they're beautiful. He knows what he's doing with that new life that he's given you. And then in verse two, he describes our teeth in a way that probably strikes us as a little odd here. Uh, your teeth are like a flock of shorn sheep, which have come up from the washing, every one of which bears twins, and none is barren among them. Now, the idea is clear enough here. They are teeth that are uniform, where none of them are missing. In other words, to put it bluntly, 
She doesn't have a tooth out here and over here and down here. She, she's got her, her teeth. They're clean and white and they're beautiful teeth. That's obvious from the picture that's given here. Now, when we think of this spiritually, we may think of how that we're said to receive Christ, the bread of life, by eating, by chewing the bread of life. As his bride, we chew his word. We meditate on his revealed truth and we take it bit by bit and we digest it so that it gives us spiritual health, strength and vitality. Some of the um, reformers and the Puritans saw this particularly as within the whole bride of Christ that ministers are especially those who who chew the word and then uh, give it to God's people after when where they can receive it easier as it's been um been been brought to them so so he sees his bride with um with with these wonderful teeth receiving the the things that that he gives that's what teeth are for then in verse three he moves on to describe the beauty of our mouth with lips like a scarlet thread again you know, the, the detailed interpretation of these things is not the point. It's that everything about us is beautiful to him. Okay, that's the thing. But all of these things have spiritual relations somehow. Not necessarily saying this is the only way to look at it that I'm showing you, but it's just some, some things that, you know, many people have thought on these things and it's very helpful. You know, when we think of a lovely mouth on the bride of Christ, what do we think about? Well, Surely we think about words that are spoken, don't we? Like, like when we sing in Psalm 45 about Jesus' mouth, then uh, you know, it's adorned with grace and his lips uh, are, have grace poured out on them. Then uh, we understand what that means. It's, a, it's the things that he says, isn't it, that are, that are lovely. So uh, we, have the, we think of the words then that are spoken by the bride, words of love that she has. Words of encouragement, words that edify other people, words of praise to our Savior. She speaks of him, of his excellence, of his glory, of the promises that he has made. He thinks that we're beautiful because he has put a new song in our mouth to praise our God. So this is something that is very lovely in his sight. And then at the end of verse three, the beauty of our temples is described. The temple is, you know, the side of the face here and down. It would include for the, apparently the word that is used in the Hebrew would come around even for the cheeks, like all around the, the, the side of the face there. So it's a and, and that's a that's a beautiful part of a woman, isn't it? So here, perhaps we think of the blush that is so attractive because a pomegranate is a red kind of looks like fleshly fruit that uh, not when you when you tear it apart, but when you have the the sides of it, it looks is, is compared for the cheek here. And um, so so we think of this attractive blush that um, the, the, the pomegranate was used for for decoration of the temple in various ways and for many things in the ceremonial law, like the priest had pomegranates around the bottom of his uh, garment. So, so this part of the face, the side of the face is expressive, isn't it? Blushing in his presence because of his glory and because of our unworthiness. When he comes to us and says, 
you are fair, my love. And it makes us blush because we, we feel like he's such a great king and, and we, we're honoring him and we're looking to him. There's something beautiful about that. The, the curve on the face and the, the color and the, the softness that delights him and his bride as she responds to him in a warmth that is, is, is there. And then the sixth thing that he praises about us is our neck. In verse 4, he compares his bride's neck to the Tower of David. A white tower that was um, erected as an armory with shields hanging on it. In the neck, he sees the beauty of our strength as those who are committed to him. A neck can show resistance to one and commitment to another, can't it? Like we're not to have a stiff neck to the Lord. You can recognize a stiff neck right away. Somebody, you know, you, they don't, they're like to their parents or something, they don't want to, they don't want to do what they're, t- and, and then somebody else has a, has a responsive neck that uh, is showing a commitment. Many suggest that the tower with the shields is depicting the necklace with the, they would, they would hang, you remember Solomon made a bunch of gold shields and put it on around the edifice that uh, he had in uh, one of his houses that he had. And and so this is pointing to a necklace that looks like those shields that are hung on the the tower. And remember we saw in chapter 1 that um, the the Trinity was shown to to make her um, necklace with with, uh, gold and silver and uh, that she was adorned with that. We said that this is those graces that are now part of our life in Jesus Christ, the fruits of the new life, love, joy, peace, patience, goodness, gentleness, self-control. These are the beauty of the bride with which her neck is adorned, with which she is adorned. And and, and he, he says, this is beautiful. This is, you are fair, you are, you are lovely, my love. And then the seventh thing that he praises about us, his bride, is our breasts. Verse 5 says, your two breasts are like two fawns, twins of a gazelle which feed among the lilies. This is actually a very beautiful image of the breasts that are given as Proverbs say, to satisfy her husband for love, for affection, for tenderness, for her openness to him. Proverbs 5 tells husbands to let their wives' breasts satisfy them at all time, not looking to another, but looking to their wife. Here is our intimacy with Christ. You know, we know, not sexually, we don't have sexual intimacy with Christ. Of course, we're not talking about that, but what corresponds to that spiritually is what we're talking about here it's like twin fawns in here feeding among lilies feeding remember the lilies what are the lilies in the song of Solomon? we've seen them a number of times it's the god's people isn't it remember that jesus is the lily of the valley and then you have the lily that we're like lilies in a field and uh so here are the lilies again and uh, here the bride is nourished, and here she is also nourishing her young, feeding and being fed. Remember the word feeding can go both ways. She's feeding among the lilies, and she's feeding among the lilies. She's feeding others, she's being fed. And isn't that what God's people do? And it's lovely to him. We have things from our Lord to give for blessing to others, to nourish them, and to care for them 
So, um, and this all to the delight of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. There is much here that is hard to, to understand or to be exact about. But, you know, no matter how you interpret the Song of Solomon, like the people that don't see it as uh, um, allegory, they have the same trouble. I mean, what do you do with the neck, you know, with the Tower of David and all that stuff? It's, it's all it's hard things to, to fully understand and interpret. But what we know, even if even people that say, oh, I don't think it's a, 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 the, the Song of Solomon is, is meant to be interpreted that way. But even if you don't, marriage, we're told very plainly in the Bible, is a picture of our relationship with Christ. And he praises his bride according to scripture that, you know, other scriptures outside of the Song of Solomon. So be encouraged that he has this charitable judgment about us that we've talked about. Because we see it in Hebrews, don't we? Very plainly. When he talks about their faith. It, he, he speaks about it. He praises them so much. And he doesn't even seem to notice all the doubting stuff that we see. And uh, you could look at Romans 4 in the same way. When it talks about Abraham and how he wavered not. It's like, really? Abraham? <laughs> didn't, didn't he go down to Egypt a couple of times? Didn't he lie about his wife? Didn't he go to Hagar? Didn't he? <laughs> he wavered not. Like, Wow. That's amazing. You see, it's that charitable judgment. So be encouraged. He says to his bride, you are fair. You are lovely. Now, he goes on to tell us how much he wants to be with us. It wouldn't be a very good thing if he said, you're really beautiful, but I I don't want to be around you. (laughs) You know, oh, okay. That's, That's not very comforting. But he tells us where he can be found. Until the end of the age. In verse 6, he promises that he will be at the mountain of myrrh and the hill of frankincense. Now, what is that? Well, myrrh and frankincense, you may kind of have an idea by now from things we've looked at before. Uh, but how are they used in ceremonial worship? These, these were both used in ceremonial worship. At the throne of grace, where God's people meet with him. It is in the church the house of prayers, it's called, where his people are commanded to assemble before him. What's done there? Sacrifices are made to reconcile them to God so that they come in the name of Christ, who is ultimately the one that offered the sacrifice and who intercedes for us. So in the Old Testament, it was at the temple where incense was actually burned and sacrifices were actually offered. Even when the temple was in ruins, you will remember, during the exile, Daniel turned there at the times when the sacrifices would have been offered in the morning and evening. He looked to the, where the temple had stood because he was trusting in God to make provision for him to be able to come to God. That's where you meet with God. You meet with God in Jesus' name who intercedes for us and who atones for us. You can't meet God anywhere else but in Christ. Now, in the New Testament, the church assembles at the command of God in every place where the elders call God's people together for worship by means of uh, words, sacraments, and prayer. Now that Jesus has come, then we trust in his finished work and that he is reigning at God's right hand now interceding for us where he prays for us. He has replaced the ceremonial offerings and the incense at the temple. But we still have 
the myrrh and the frankincense. Only now it's fulfilled. The, the shadow is fulfilled. And the point of verse 6 is that he promises to be with us at the house of prayer appointed by God. When we come to him as his bride to praise him, to give thanks to him, to lift up our supplications, to receive his sacraments, and to hear his gospel and receive his counsel, we can always find him at the place where Jesus is revealed and declared among his people. Verse 6 is an answer, actually, to our prayer that we made back in chapter 2, verse 17. Do you remember that prayer? That was during the springtime situation. Uh, He had come to visit us with springtime love after a a time when he had not been near and uh, adding new growth. Springtime is where he adds new growth to our relationship with him. We ask him, do you remember, to keep up his visits. Keep coming Keep coming with these springtime visits so that I can have fresh growth in my relationship with you. Sometimes we have the winter time and then we have a more difficult, slower growth. That's important, too. But the springtime, we look forward to that and and we delight. Remember the gazelle coming, coming to us, going over all the barriers to come to us in order to to mate with us, as it were, to to establish this love between us and him. Well, we said at that time, in the, after the springtime situation, we said, we want, to, we want, Lord, keep this going. Keep, keep coming and visiting us like this. Song of Solomon 2.17 says, Until the day breaks and the shadows flee away, turn, my beloved, speaking to him, and be like a gazelle or a young stag upon the mountains of Bethre. Remember, Bethre is a separ- means separation or division. Come and what, what's dividing us from you? All these crags and valleys and stones and all these things, mountains. Comes over the hills, leaping over the hills, no barrier. He comes to us to bring this blessing to us. We said, keep on doing this until the day breaks and the shadows flee away till the time when we are with you forever as you have promised that we will be until the eternal state comes and we are together face to face forever and you see here in song of solomon 4 6 how he picks up on the language and he answers that request that we made to him in the springtime he says until the day breaks and the shadows flee away i will go my way to the mountain of myrrh and to the hill of frankincense he says basically i'll tell you about that you can find me always at the throne of grace. You can find me always at the house of prayer. That's where I will be. We will meet with him there. There is where we pray in his name, remembering his offering for our sin that he reconc- that reconciles us to him and to the Father. Now he tells us in verse 7 and 8 how much he wants us to come there. Lest we have already forgotten though Before he gets to that, he reassures us that we are the desire of his eyes. Okay, so he's introduced something new here. I'm going to be at the the hill, the mountain of myrrh and the hill of frankincense. But now he interjects here before he goes on with the thought. And he says, 
you know, uh, verse 7, similar words to verse 1. You are all fair, my love, and there is no spot in you. You notice he's added this word all now to say you are all fair or all lovely. And he's added also there's no spot in you. He didn't say that before. Here is his charitable judgment again. <laughs> okay, He sees what is in the making. He sees what is in the stone. Seeing not our remaining faults, but the new life that he has given us that will prevail in us forever. He sees us as those that he has redeemed and who are therefore the object of the delight of his eyes. And then he moves on. We have the invitation to come to him, to be with him. To come away from where we are, to be with him where he is. Where is he now? In the mountain of myrrh and the hill of frankincense. The place where he can be found until the day breaks and the shadows flee away. So hear his gracious call in verse 8. Come with me, he says, from Lebanon, my spouse. With me from Lebanon. Look from the top of Amana, from the top of Sinar and Hermon, from the lion's dens, from the mountains of the leopards. He calls us from some of the most lofty and lovely places of the world to be with him. And you see how that's repeated? It's emphasized with him. He says, come with me from there in Lebanon. And he says it again, come with me. He wants us to go with him to the place where he can be found. Instead of getting all caught up in these hills of the world. He also tells us to look from these places. To look from them to him. Okay? Now as his bride... Then our treasure, with our dove's eyes, is not found in the hills of this world. In beautiful Lebanon, Amana, Sinar, and Hermon. And these places, we're told here, are ravenous beasts that bite and devour the lion and the leopard that destroy and kill. He has redeemed us from the world that we might be with him forever which is far better so don't look to riches and honors and pleasures this isn't talking about physical place so much is it is where is your treasure where is your heart so don't look to riches honors pleasures wine women song all these things for your treasure but look look not to these things which are seen but are the things which are not seen go with christ live for him live for his pleasure. He is not hard to please. He's a redeemer who saves and transforms those who come to him. He's not a judge who condemns. Where is he inviting us here? Is he inviting us to come to the, to the uh, judgment, to, to, the, to the throne of grace, or is he inviting us to come to the throne of judgment? He's inviting us here to come to the throne of grace. Not the throne of judgment. He will summon the world on the last day to the throne of judgment. He certainly will. Everyone, the sheep and the goats, one on the right hand, one on the left, all be gathered together before him at that last day to be judged. But And then the righteous will enter into the inheritance that he has given them of life in his house. And the wicked will be cast into the lake of fire. But now, until the day breaks and the shadows flee away... He says, meet me here. 
in a place of intercession. You can't come directly to him where you see him face to face, but we come and meet him by praying in his name who offered himself for our sake. Come away with me then, he says, from the hills of the world. He has freed us from the lion and the leopard and we are to meet Christ each day and each week at the throne of grace when we gather together as his people. You meet him privately in your family worship and your, in your own personal worship, but also each week. Not just as a duty, but we come to present ourselves to him as the bride that he loves and to find our joy and delight in our fellowship with him. Brothers and sisters, let me tell you, it is so important to come to church to praise him and to thank him. Don't don't sit at home and live stream unless you have very good reasons for doing so. You need to be in a place where he is praised and where you can eat the bread and, and drink the wine and give thanks to his name. You need to participate. You need to find him at the mountain of myrrh where he offered himself at the hill of frankincense where he intercedes for us. He has called us together, why? To be with him. I think too often, you know, we look at at worship as something where we're just getting instruction. It's not just where we get instruction. We come to meet with him. We come to adore him. We come to lift up praises to his name. We need to be engaged in that. We need to prepare for that. I, I, I feel like there's a weakness today in, in, in so many Reformed churches where, where we're, we're not recognizing what we're doing when we, we're coming before God in Jesus' name. We're looking to connect with Him in these ways. Is His call not compelling? I mean, this is the King of kings and the Lord of lords who calls you to come And be with me, he says. The King of Kings. The Lord of Lords. Would you come in a kind of a half-hearted way if a great king asked you to come and be with him? He has told you that you are beautiful and he has told you that he wants to be with you. So why would you not come to him with great gladness? But it still doesn't stop there. There's a third thing. He goes on to tell you how much he delights in your love. So not only does he think that you're, you're very beautiful, and not only does he want to be with you, but he also delights in your love. And not just a little bit. He uses about as strong language as you could use here. He says... You have ravished my heart. In fact, in the Hebrew behind that, he actually made up a word, it appears. Because we can't find that word anywhere else, anywhere. There's no other occasion for that word. What is the word? It's the word heart, normal word for heart. But then it has a negative put in front of it. So like not heart, kind of, or whatever you might say. A a, a heart, you know, like when you have a negator. And then it's turned into a verb. So the word heart is changed from a noun into a verb. So he takes the word heart, changes it into a verb, then puts a negative particle in front of it. So it's almost as if you say, he says to us, you have unhearted me. 
Or like you talk about deworming a dog. You have dehearted me. You've taken my heart out of me, is the idea. We, we use expressions like that. You know, you take my heart away. You've stolen my heart. That kind of thing. Now, it is hard to believe who's talking here. That the Lord of glory is talking here. And that he should speak like this to us. But he does. How could he be enraptured with us? Twice. He says that he is ravished just to make sure that that we get it. Verse nine, you have ravished my heart, my sister, my spouse. You have ravished my heart. Look at that with one look of your eyes, with one link of your necklace. Now, that's interesting. All it takes is one look of interest in him from our eyes single glance of love and desire is enough to ravish his heart. Just just a little glance of interest is enough. Just catching a glimpse, catching a glimpse of us, of one of the links of our necklace that he has given to adorn us. Just one is all it takes to ravish his heart, to eat out his heart with desire. Notice that added touch of endearment too. how he how he here calls us both his sister and his spouse, my sister, my spouse. We're both his sister and his spouse. You know, again, this is spiritual stuff, right? This is what what is that getting at? This is not incest. This is spiritual relationship illustrated with earthly relationships. He is committed to us in every way that a faithful brother is committed to his sister and in every way that a faithful husband is committed to his wife. He is ravished here, he's telling us. Let, let me say a little bit more about that, the commitment of the, the brother and sister. Um, I read about in the ancient world that there were some men who would actually, they, they made this a legal thing that you could do. You could adopt your wife so that she became your sister. And why do they do that? It was when they wanted to show their wife how very committed they were to her, And the idea was that you could break a marriage, but you couldn't get rid of your sister. She's your sister. So they would actually, um, they would sometimes do that to show their strong commitment. Now, what's the thing here, though, that he says to us? This is just a way that he speaks to us of his commitment. But he's ravished by even the tiniest response of love for us. Because why? Because it's the fruit of something amazing. The new life from one who is dead and had no life, no response to him whatsoever. We were dead in our trespasses and sins. We could not even look to him. And that look of desire, that look of true faith, of depending on him, of loving him, only comes When that seed of life we talked about before is there, that new life. And he knows that that is a permanent thing and it ravishes his heart whenever he sees it. This is so beautiful. He says that it is much better than wine. Let let me not quite move there yet, though. Um, He tells us in verse 10 and 11 how much he loves our love. He says that our love itself is fair and beautiful. Verse 10. How fair is your love, 
my sister, my spouse. Our love is the thing that he loves the most, and our love for him is the love that he loves the most. Okay, so he loves to see our love most of all. He loves to see our love for him in all of the ways that we love. We love him because he first loved us. Not only that we responded to him because his love constrained a response. We saw how much he loved us and then we reciprocated. But you see, we never would have reciprocated at all except what? That he, has gave, he gave us his spirit who worked love in us in our barren dead heart. So that we, something we could never otherwise have done whatsoever. We could never respond to him. Just as he delighted in his image that he put in us in creation. Remember when he created everything? He said it was very good. And we were told that God and the angels rejoiced over creation. But he delights much more in the love and other graces that he recreates in those who are ruined by the fall. When he redeems us. He finds this love to him to be the most beautiful thing of all. And his view of what is excellent is not mistaken. He knows what is excellent and what is not excellent. And he knows what is supremely excellent. And he says that that love that is even a glance toward him is something that is supremely excellent. He says that it is much better than wine and than all perfumes. Things that were prized in the ancient world especially. Verse 10 continues, how much better than wine is your love and the scent of your perfumes than all spices. The best things of this world created by him, things that are created by him to make the heart of man glad, deliberately that was their purpose, pale in comparison of our love for him. Here again, I say his judgment about that is right. It is far better. Far better than wine in the best spices. Give to him then your best love. That is what he wants more than any other gift that you would give him. Wine or, or whatever it might be. He says that our lips by which we express our love to him are sweeter than the honeycomb. Verse 11. Your lips, O oh my spouse, drip as the honeycomb. Honey and milk are under your tongue. What is under your tongue? cannot be seen what is said by you can be seen or or, or heard as it were Um, there can be poison under your tongue or there can be honey and milk under your tongue words can be empty they can be deceptive or they can be true and in his redeemed bride our expressions of love to him our kisses are dripping with beauty and sweet sincerity. They're not artificial. They're not with poison that is ready to kill. He wants these praises from you, brothers and sisters. Come away with him from Lebanon. Get your heart out of the world and onto him. He says that the fragrance of our very garments are delightful to him. Verse 11 continues. And the fragrance of your garments is like the fragrance of Lebanon. Here, Lebanon is no longer a symbol of the world, but it's a symbol of places where they had some really wonderful smells in the woods there that you come away with the scent on your clothes. And he's indicating that we're so pleasing to him 
that even the things that we wear are delightful to him. You know, when there's a relationship of love that is very strong, just something that the other person possesses that they have left behind is pleasing in your eyes. It evokes something of a, of, of a delight. He is telling us in every way here how much he loves us, how much he delights. He's ravished. His, his, his heart is ravished. So, Bride of Christ... You see here, the King of glory, the Lord of lords, is calling for you. He wants you. He finds you very beautiful and very desirable. Do not hold yourself back. Give yourself wholly to him. The subject to which we will turn next week, Lord willing. We'll look at giving ourselves wholly to him. Here today we have seen he's ravished with us. Please stand and let's pray. Most merciful, gracious, heavenly father, how we praise you for the redemption that is ours in Christ Jesus. It is rather crazy to think that that we who are aliens and cut off, who are estranged from you by our sin, who are guilty, who are condemned to eternal condemnation in hell, that such as us have been redeemed, not just to be people that are tolerated by you, but to be those who are your bride. And you do not treat your bride the way many men treat their brides in this world. You treat your bride the way that every bride would desire to be treated. Truly, O oh Lord, you are very, very faithful. You're very devoted. You love us with an everlasting love. And you are ravished by even just a little response from us. For it is a response that could not be found in us apart from your grace. It is a new creation in, in our dead heart that was estranged and cut off from you. We thank you, Lord, that we're able to respond to you by your grace. And we thank you that you welcome those responses and that you look at them with such delight that, that you can say of, of Sarah or of Samson or of Abraham or, or whoever it is that, that they had perfect faith. You know, they didn't waver. They were, they were so much, had dove's eyes toward you. They were so single-hearted and devoted and, and so on. We thank you, O oh Lord, that that is what we're to be for all eternity if indeed we are those who have come and have received salvation from Jesus Christ. We pray, O oh Lord, that it is those who are waiting now for the great day when the wedding day that is in the future, when we will see Christ face to face and when we'll be with him forever in his house. We pray, Lord, that until the, that day breaks and the shadows flee away, that we will come to meet you in the, mount, in the mountain of myrrh in the house of and the, um, the hill of, of frankincense and that we will find Christ as we come in his name to pray and to seek your face and to worship you, to learn of you, to read your word, to bring praises to you, to delight in who you are. Father, we really, really need to grow in these things and we should be delighted 
that the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords wants to be with us, that you want to commune with us, that you want to share yourself with us, and you want, as it were, our breasts to satisfy you at all times. Lord, how we praise you and how we thank you. Lord, bring us near to you. Lord, work in us. Thank you that that prayer, that you would bring us near, that it will be answered. You will do this. Our hope, Lord, is in your promise and in your work. We see what a mess we are sometimes in the world. We see divisions in the church. We see our, our slackness. We see how we drift. We see how our heart goes out to, to stupid, foolish things that, that we cherish that are, not, that are harmful and destructive. But Father, we thank you that that life is in us, that life where we have come and, and placed ourselves in your care, your hands for salvation, that you will not fail us. You will not betray your promise that whoever calls on your name will be saved. And so, Father, we come to you with hope and gladness, knowing that you are faithful and that you regard us as faithful in Christ Jesus. We praise you in his name. Amen. Please be seated and let's prepare to come to the Lord's table now. The whole matter of thinking that the Lord would be ravished with us. It's kind of, it's kind of hard to believe, isn't it? That he, that, you know, it might even be um, a pause to, to tempt us to think that um, maybe we're not reading the Song of Solomon right way. This is a little too much. Can't be quite as extreme as this and his, of his delight in us and his, uh, things that he says about us. I mean, we're not interpreting this the right way, except for one thing, and really two things. We do have scriptures that tell us directly that the Lord rejoices over us the way a young man rejoices over his new bride. So it's not just dependent on an interpretation of the Song of Solomon, it's dependent upon actual direct statement of scripture. So we aren't wrong about it. That there is this kind of relationship with him. Isaiah 62 5. And as, a bride, as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. That nails it. He does love us like that. The way a bridegroom rejoices over his new bride. But the thing that I was thinking about that, that ought to put to silence our doubts about Christ's love is. The thought when we give thoughtful consideration of what he did, that we might be his bride. Then we see the the level of commitment that we're talking about here, the level of desire that he has for us to be with him. When we look at what he did and what he was willing to do in order that we might be with him, then there can be no doubt that obviously, if he was that desirous. For us to be with him, that he 
I'm going to like as soon as there's that movement toward him. Even that, that weak little, little tiny bit of one eye of faith that's looking with desire toward him is sufficient to stir him with great joy and rejoicing because this is the fruit of his work, the work of his spirit in us. So here's what we read in Romans 5, 6 through 8 about his love what he did that we might be his bride. He says, Romans 5, 6, For when we were still without strength in due time, Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die, yet perhaps for a good man someone will even dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love toward us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So the Holy Spirit tells us here that him dying for us when we were sinners that that demonstrates his love. It doesn't demonstrate just that, you know, he kind of mechanically did something or, or something like that or he did it for some other reason. It demonstrates, the Bible, God's Word says, it demonstrates his love to us. Think, oh, I don't think it really demonstrates it. It does. That, that's what this scripture says. The Holy Spirit says so. It is this great love that we're to delight in each time we come to the table. Because what's revealed here? Christ died for our sins. The Son of God became flesh and died for our sins. That's what's revealed here. What's demonstrated by that? His love for us. Here we have set before us tokens of the body and blood of a sacrifice that was offered for our sins, of a blood sacrifice of atonement. And you know whose sacrifice, what the sacrifice was. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, is the sacrifice represented on this table by the bread and the wine. He is the one who gave himself for our sins. If he has done that for us, should we think that it makes little difference to him whether we love him or not? It makes much difference. Should we think that he will turn us away if we come to him, that we might be sanctified? If we come to this table and say, Lord, work my life and Make me more holy, make me more like Jesus, renew your image in me. We become in, we might grow in grace, that we might bear more fruit, and we're looking to him for that. Is he going to turn us away? If we come looking to him to apply the benefits of his his offering that is represented here for for us, is he going to despise that about us? No, he's going to to be thrilled with that. That that looking to him. For, for this grace and for these lessons. Here are welcoming words to come to Him and have communion with Him. They're the same ones I read last week from Luke because it expresses His desire for us, which is what of course we looked at last week as well as this week. And um, we, I really like the way Luke builds up to it when he says, you know, that the Passover drew near the beginning of the chapter. And he moves closer. And he says, the day of the Passover came. And then where we pick up reading here, 22.14, he says, when the hour had come. So you've got the, the, the time was near, and then the day, and then the hour had come. He said, there's something really important going on here. Something really that he anticipated that he was waiting to do and looking forward to doing as he tells us here. 
When the hour had come, he sat down and the twelve apostles with him. Then he said to them, With fervent desire I have desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I say to you, I will no longer eat of it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. Now, when is that? Fulfilling, he won't be with us, he won't be with us face to face until when? The day breaks and the shadows flee away. Right? But we saw it. So what do we have before that? We come to the mountain of myrrh and to the hill of incense where we meet him through his mediatorial work in faith as our Savior at the house of prayer and where the ordinances are dispensed. That's how we meet him. He says that exactly here, really. He says, uh, let me read it again. With fervent desire, I desire to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I say to you, I will no longer eat of it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. We're not going to have this face-to-face thing like this. Then he took the cup and gave thanks and said, Take this and divide it among yourselves. For I say to you, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took the bread, gave thanks, broke it and gave it to them saying, This is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Likewise, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is shed for you. The new covenant, the old covenant, had sacrifices and offerings of the blood of bulls and goats to reconcile us with God. The house of prayer was the place where you went. You were reconciled with God through the uh, representatively through the through the ceremonies and sacrifices that were done, the incense that was it was lifted up to God. Now he says, this is the new covenant in my blood shed for the remission of your sins. This is how you connect with me. This is the pricing place. You come in my name looking to me at the house of incense and myrrh, frankincense and myrrh. You come here and you meet with me through my mediatorial work that I did on the cross. So if you are one who is looking to Him for salvation, and if you have been baptized and professed your faith in Him, and are a communicant member of good standing or a faithful church, you're invited to come and partake. Of course, if any of you are not, maybe somewhere on a live stream or that sort of thing, then we're always happy to talk to you about what it means to trust in Christ and to receive Him, that you might be a member of the church of Jesus Christ. So you who are faithful members, come and delight in the Son of God in this way that He has given us to meet Him. Through faith in Him as mediator and His saving work that is set before our eyes here in these symbols to direct us and point us to the way that we're connected to Him in the new covenant by faith in His blood shed the remission of our sins. Come to God. Look for freshness in your walk with Him. Look for blessing. Look for new life. Look for sanctification. Look for forgiveness. Look for all of the things that are promised at the throne of grace. It's not the throne of judgment. It's the throne of grace where we come to have communion with our Lord and Master. So let's pray and ask Him to bless us. Our gracious Heavenly Father, We thank you, O Lord, 
for how you have loved us. We thank you, Lord Jesus, that you loved us and gave yourself for us. And even while we were yet sinners, that you die on the cross. And then with fervent desire, you desired to, to eat that Passover at which time you said, this old covenant is now replaced by a new covenant in my blood. You gave us a new and living way so that the, the mountain of myrrh, the, the hill of frankincense, is now no longer at the temple made with man's hands in Jerusalem. But now it is through faith in your work that you did on the cross, your saving work, represented here by the bread broken and the wine poured out. And we pray, O oh Lord, that you will come with confidence because of that work, knowing that whatever faith we have, whatever look that we do, that is a true, gracious look to you for blessing salvation, for forgiveness, for deliverance, that you, O oh Lord, will be pleased, very, very pleased, that your heart will be ravished if we come to you in this way. May we get a sense of this, Lord. May we get an assurance of this as we come before your great name. What a privilege it is that the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords has called us and invited us to come here. Oh, Lord, bless us and continue to meet us here until the day breaks and the shadows flee away and we are brought before you face to face. We pray these things in Jesus, our risen Savior's name. Amen. Receive now the blessing of the Lord our God. Be of good comfort. Be of one mind. Live in peace. And the God of love and peace will be with you. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the communion of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen.